Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have mental health activist and author Lily Bailey. At age 16, Lily was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, although her first experiences with OCD occurred during childhood. Recently, Lily released a children's book, When I See Blue, about a young boy in his struggles with OCD. In this episode, we spoke about the misconceptions about OCD, whether writing can be cathartic, and the potential future of OCD treatments. Welcome to the latest episode of MQ's Open Mind podcast. And Craig and I are absolutely delighted that our guest today is Lily Bailey. And Lily is a fantastic author and former journalist. And Lily's really going to talk about maybe her own experiences and the great work that she's been writing about. So her focus is on OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. So Welcome, Lily, and thanks a million for taking the time to chat with Craig and I today. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Great. So we're just going to have, a, obviously, just a pretty informal conversation, just chat about your experiences and effectively your, your life. Um, so maybe could you maybe start off, tell us a bit about your experiences, which I know have directly informed um, your, well, two books now. We can talk about those in a second. But do you want to just kick us off with that, Lily? That'd be fantastic. Yeah, so I have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and I've had it ever since I can remember, really, but I didn't know what it was for a long time. I got my diagnosis when I was 16, and so I spent a lot of my childhood and teenage years uh, living with, with this thing and sort of thinking, gosh, does, does everyone think like this? And if so, how are they getting stuff done? Or is there something really wrong with me? And But, but probably I should keep quiet about it because... My OCD uh, tend to center, it tended to center around harm. I would have obsessions that I might harm someone um, and or that I might have done something wrong. And then my compulsions in response would tend to sort of be that to kind of try and neutralize those fears by maybe like repeating a phrase in my head or sort of analyzing the actions, uh, ruminating. People often don't know that mental rumination can be a compulsion. And I definitely didn't know that. So I'd spend a lot of time analysing my actions and trying to work out if I really was a monster. I had a lot of intrusive thoughts, um, sort of like, oh, I want to kill my dog or I want to kill my family, which I really didn't want to do. They're ego dystonic, so they went against my values. But um, I didn't know that. I, I, and I thought if I told anyone about that, you know, maybe I'd just get taken to prison or locked away. And yeah, so it was it was really frightening, actually. And so so you said that... So that um... So that, but when do you first remember experiencing those thoughts? You mentioned 16 there. Well, 16 was, yeah, when it sort of came to a head. I, and I, I basically got so unwell with it that I decided that if I lay in bed and just kept completely still, then I wouldn't do things wrong. And that would be the best way to cope. And that was the point where people around me realized something was wrong. But yeah, I, I, I remember having it from my, like from the, from a very young age, I guess, like an example of that might be, um, when I was in reception, a teacher put a, a note in our backpack and I became convinced that that this letter was a letter to my parents saying all the things I'd done wrong. So I 
I went out of my way to destroy this letter and bin it. It was actually a letter telling us that there was going to be a fancy dress day. So then I was the only kid who came in, not in fancy dress. Um, that's a that's like quite a strong memory I have, and it's probably also reinforced by the fact that other people in my family remember it. Mm-hmm. But just yeah. a, a real sense that I was going to be in trouble, that I'd done something terrible, and I needed to atone for it or make it right or ask the person if I'd hurt them or hide the evidence depending on how I was feeling on 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 that day um so and 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 also I would apologize as a as a compulsion too so that would be happening from a very young age I'd be sort of brushing against someone and being like oh I'm sorry did I hurt you because in my mind I'd sort of picture their bones all crunched up inside that I'd really injured them that kind of thing yeah, because I remember I read, I think, I think it's something from a few years ago in, in the, an interview you did in The Guardian. And I think you talked about if you brushed I say, or against somebody, then that would be a letter. Oh, that, oh that'd be B, or they had somebody banged into somebody's arm. Yeah. So could you tell us a bit about that? So that you would then, then repeat these letters? Is that what it was? or? So initially, in my sort of younger memories, it's this sort of vague fear that I've done something wrong, I've got to fix it. As I got older... Um, I sort I I sort of developed more complicated compulsions, and one of them um, was when I was around the age of sort of twelve, thirteen. I realised that I could um, at the time. It's interesting because at, at the time I was like, "Oh, I've solved it." Because again, I didn't know I had OCD. I was like, "This is a good way to deal with," but actually, it was just a further compulsion. So what I would do is, so say I I um, thought I maybe stared at someone's bum. I'd take the letter B, put it on my list. And then maybe say I thought I um, I uh, hurt their arm because I brushed, yeah, like mm. I brushed against them. I might take the letter A for arm. And then say I worried I came too close to someone and I smelt bad. I could take the letter S for smell. And then I'd be like B-A-S, B-A-S, B-A-S. And this would go on throughout the day. So in the end, I could have like hundreds of letters on my list and I'd sort of review them all at nighttime and determine which one was like red. If it was red, then I had to continue, carry it forward and continue thinking about it. If it was green, I could dismiss it, let it go. And then there'd sort of be like a reshuffling and the whole process would begin again the next day. And then would you, so in your, so when, in your process and throughout the day, then you were working out whether this would still be, would, would be, you could dismiss it as a green or if it would still, the, it still need it work or what way was that? What was going through your head in terms of the green and red? Green is, uh, this this action was not so bad I can move on from it red is this action was pretty bad and it needs to be ruminated about a bit more during the day though I'd mostly sort of be stockpiling stockpiling and doing some sort of loose rumination of actions and then in the evening and nighttime that was when like I don't know I like basically like sent myself to my own court or something (laughs) yeah uh, I laugh but it was Pretty awful. Almost exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Exhausting. I can imagine. Yeah, very difficult, especially for yeah. a child to go through. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's really lonely when you're when you don't when you don't know what why this is happening to you, or what it is, or what's going on. Yeah. And so and so what so and at that age then so you didn't share these what this with anybody at that stage. I think I did. What not? I I would sometimes ask my mum for some kind of reassurance. And it might, I was quite secretive. And because a lot of it, because it was happening so much in my head, I think people just thought that I was a bit of a daydreamer, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. But I did ask my mum, like I would, 
I would try to sort of confess to her some of the intrusive thoughts I had. And I think she, it came from a good place. She was just trying to reassure me. She'd say sort of like, oh, everyone has those thoughts. Um, and I can, so I can, and I can see why she, why she responded in that way. Um, but if I did try, I, I think because it was so much worse in my head than it was externally, if I tried to sort of explain, it would sort of be dismissed as, oh, everyone thinks that sometimes, that kind of thing. And then, so, so, and oh, I mean, because of course, I mean, as a parent, well, I mean, what you're trying to do is do whatever you can to reassure your, your loved yeah. ones. And, and do, do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a younger sibling. She's a five years Five years younger than me. Yeah, so you're only able then to talk to your sibling, your your sister about it then. I mean, I'm just thinking when stuff happened to me in the past, I mean, well, I have an identical twin brother, so I always had ah. him there to 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 make sort of sense of the world with. But I suppose yeah. if your sibling is five years younger, that's... I think, yeah, no, that's... I didn't want to sort of bother her with it. And I do actually speak to her about it now. We're adults. It's quite yeah. a different relationship. And actually, interestingly, she... Uh, went through various stages of having quite bad compulsions and probably what what would be clinically diagnosed as OCD although she never got a diagnosis um and when she was going through that I was able to sort of like pass on what I'd learned about OCD and therapy and mm -hmm. like how, how you can work with this thing to to her but yeah we've we've both we've both been through quite compulsive periods in our lives was it difficult to get a diagnosis? Because I know you were saying that you first, like the symptoms were when you was quite young, but you got a diagnosis at 16. Was it quite difficult to actually get that diagnosis? I mean, I think the, the difficulty was that, like the period before the crisis point, because I wasn't really, con I'm, I mean, I'm not blaming myself, but I wasn't really conveying what was going on. So it wasn't kind of clear that there was a problem. And I mean, I think OCD is really, misunderstood and often not picked up no one around me picked up on it my teachers didn't my actually I, there would there would be certain things that would be picked up on like I would I would cry in lessons if I got a, a question a question wrong um and in the end my parents ended up getting called into the school to like talk about whether there was something going on at home but they didn't kind of focus on the fact that what was happening was that my compulsions were getting so bad I was crying like there was sort of there was sort of inching towards it but it didn't quite happen from the moment that I stopped getting out of bed and was sent to a GP actually my experience was really good because my GP instantly recognized that what I was going through was because I then explained it to her she said oh that's OCD and I was really surprised mm -hmm. I sort of had grown up with all of the stereotypes around OCD and I was like well I'm really messy but she, but she explained to me how my thinking fit that obsessive compulsive pattern and how OCD can kind of be about anything and from that period from from then on Actually, my experience was my experience was really good. Was that at sixteen then, or what is? Do you go to speak to GP? That was when I was sixteen. Yeah, sixteen. Yeah. And so then the because obviously not getting out of the bed might be one of the obviously symptoms of depression as well. Yeah. Well, the thing the thing that enabled her to say no, this is what because she's. I, I mean, I don't know why I felt comfortable to speak to her on that particular mm. day. I think it had just really reached an absolute crisis point. Maybe it helped that she was not someone I knew. And she went, she's sort of more than saying, like, why, like, she, she sort of said, well, what, what's going on? Why, like, in your head? What? And so I described the process. And that was, I think, how she sort of realised that it, it it was OCD. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's brilliant that, that such a positive experience with your GP. And then, so I think, again, I've seen you, you've, you've written about this elsewhere about then the support and treatment you did get. So and cognitive behavioural therapy. 
Yeah. So do you want to tell us a bit, a bit about that? And so again, was that easy to get access to that? Um, and and then how did you find that in, in terms yeah. of your support? So I was referred for um, CBT with ERP, cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure response prevention, which is the gold standard uh, therapy for, for people with OCD. And that experience was actually really good. I worked with um, a psychiatrist who was also a cognitively, a, a CBT trained uh, therapist. And um, it, it, yeah, it, it was really helpful. And I mean, it took a long time. It was, it, was, it was slow going. It also took a long time, even just to like convince me that I had OCD because I was so sort of just, yeah, like I already said, those stereotypes around it, just, yeah. I just thought, well, no, I don't have OCD. I'm just a monster kind of thing. Um, and then I was put on an SSRI at that time, a ser uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And that went on for, 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 for a, a few years. Um, I had a, a sort of real, another real crisis when I was 19. Then I had an, and I had an inpatient uh, stay. Um, and then, and in one hospital I was in, I wasn't given CBT and was just sort of left to go about my business, which was was a weird experience. Mm. Um, it was, yeah. But then I was transferred to another hospital where I then was given really good CBT again. And then since then, I have sort of been in and out of therapy. I like if I if I if it if stuff flares up again, then I will I will try and go for another course of CBT. I mean, I guess the thing is. It's hard because with the NHS, you have these huge long waiting lists and you have to sort of jump through a load of hoops and they determine whether you're severe enough to qualify for help. And it it really sometimes it really depends on who you see and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And I've had experiences since being out of hospital where it's like, oh, I'll be on a waiting list for a really long time and then referred for a, like a six session course of CBT that's just basically almost like beginner CBT. It's just, you know, stuff you do and it's really unhelpful and it and then that's really demoralizing and then I've ended up having to sort of pay for private therapy for a few sessions just to get myself back on track with money I don't really have it's it can be challenging yeah yeah absolutely and did I read somewhere so you obviously you've had the CBT the specialist CBT with exposure and then I think you've all the you've also had sort of like psychodynamic type psychotherapy as well yeah that's again in more recent years I I think I wouldn't have been able to do that before like when mm -hmm. I was in a crisis or I don't think it would have been very helpful but when I am a lot better it's been really interesting to to work in that kind of way and like look at not even just OCD but also just look at past trauma mm -hmm. and it's it's more introspective and less sort of based on like solving the immediate problem in front of me I don't think I could work psychodynamically when I'm like in an OCD crisis mm -hmm. yeah but I think it's really interesting I, I just think it's fascinating just looking at well, just helping people make sense of the different psychological therapies out there and yeah. the, the different structures on them. And as you say, the psychodynamic, much more trauma focused, maybe more historical, looking at how the past is influencing yeah. how we feel and behave now. And, and obviously the, the much more structured approach to, say, CBT. Um, and yeah, I think it's really interesting observation, yeah, that when you're in a, an acute OCD crisis, well, maybe... There's, you need a certain response, not, yeah. not another response. And I think that's really, really interesting. Okay. And, and just really highlighting that all that when we talk about the evidence base and treatments and so on, it's the fit between 
the treatment and the individual, but not just the individual and the treatment, the context as well. And I recognize yes. that. I think that's really, really important. So then just thinking then about now then, and, and we'll um, we'll we'll talk about your books in a second and how you got to that space to start writing the books. And obviously Craig has one of your books there. <laughs> I think uh, your most, most recent off shop. Yeah, here it is. Oh, we can blood. see it there, When I See Blue, uh, which came out on June 9th, 2022, which I was joking with Lily earlier, which is the best day for any publication because it's my birthday. <laughs> hey! hey. Um, no, but so, this, so then, um, thinking now, though, Lily, and so you've talked about, obviously, we've gone from childhood through the 16, then 19, and then obviously more recently. So how would you, how do you, manage your mental health now and, and like um, in terms of when you are feeling overwhelmed or there's a crisis potentially escalating? I have a really good support network that includes family and friends, but I also, um, I run a sort of support group hour on Twitter um, called OCD Talk Hour. And it's funny because people often say, people will often thank me for running it, which is lovely, but I'm always sort of very much on the page of, you know, it's like a peer-led group. It's really helpful for yeah. me too. I get a lot from it. There's just, I mean, I think there's so much you can learn from people with lived experience. Like if I'm going through something and I share it there, I'm always you know, overwhelmed by the response and people will suggest ways of looking at things and doing things that I hadn't thought of. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's having a really good community of people around me. I also attended an in-person support group uh, for a few years when I was about 20, 1920, and I retained some friends from there and we all have a WhatsApp group and they're just instrumental in my life, really. Um, I think when you go through something and other people understand that unique experience, it's just really powerful. So if I'm really struggling or if they're really struggling, we can pop it in the group chat and hear from each other. Um, activities I just find quite grounding and comforting when I'm struggling or mm -hmm. reading and walking and swimming that kind of stuff. I really struggle with stuff like I really struggle with sort of formal mindfulness uh meditation based activities although I know they can be helpful for some people but for instance swimming I think is like my equivalent it's as still as I can be <laughs> um so yeah that that kind of thing and and then like I said before if I'm in real crisis then I I I I I tend to realize I have to somehow figure out to have a few a few sessions of therapy. See the see the Twitter thing. So what tells when the Twitter R is and what's the handle again? Just remind us. Yeah, it's a Wednesday um, at seven pm, um, and you can you can jot you can, if you find me on Twitter, I'm at Lily Bailey UK, and the hashtag is OCD Talk Hour. So if you come on at that time and either look at my handle or the hashtag, you'll see all of the tweets popping up. You can uh, post saying how you're doing or ask a question or suggest a topic or interact with others, that kind of thing. Great. No, that's, I think that's fantastic. That's brilliant. Craig. Oh, no, I was going to say that was just, that's oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant to have a, a support group, especially of um, people of like-minded, you know, can bounce ideas off each other and maybe find um, um, mechanisms to help your um you know, when you're struggling. Yeah. And I think the thing I like about talk hour is that, I mean, people communicate differently. And for some people going to an in-person group is absolutely essential and what they need, but some people communicate better through writing um, and from a distance. And, and so I, and I think I might be one of those people. And so it's, it's quite nice for people who communicate in that kind of way. Yeah. Great. No, so Lily, can, before we move on to your, the writing of your books, um, so you touched on some of the earlier chat there about, 
some of the misunderstandings around OCD. So maybe could you, I think it's really helpful maybe to, to, to talk about those. Um, so what do you think the, the main misunderstandings that the average person in the street has about OCD? Um, I think mainly that it's it's all about symmetry and, and tidiness, cleanliness, liking things just so. I think uh, what people misunderstand and what I misunderstood when I didn't know what I was living with is that OCD can be about anything. You mm-hmm. just really have to sort of come back to the name of this disorder. There's the obsessive component, the sort of the fear, the worry, whatever it is that comes into your mind that's uh, causing a huge spike in anxiety or guilt or discomfort. And then there's the compulsive element, which is the action you take in response to that. And it can be physical or mental. Um, mm-hmm. I think Again, I think a lot of people don't realise that compulsions are not always overt. They're not always someone tapping a thing a certain number of times, which I've done, I've done those compulsions too. They are very much compulsions, but they're not the only compulsions. Um, So I think really the biggest sort of misunderstanding is people thinking that compulsions and obsessions are specific to cleanliness, contamination, perfectionism, Mm -hmm. and not realizing just how how broad this thing can be. I mean, I've been talking to people with OCD for almost 10 years now, and I am still regularly surprised to hear about the varied and incredibly complex ways in which people's obsessions and compulsions can manifest yeah no i think the other one just can remind when you're speaking there is it's it's that when when we often see it badly missed um portrayed on the media and it, it doesn't seem to um really demonstrate the impact it can have in people's everyday lives and that really debilitating impact so when it's when we try and minimize OCD, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just terrible to see the minimization of it. Because I think, that, I mean, if you look at the research out there, we know it does badly disrupt people's daily life and obviously the impact on your relationships, sense of your own sense of self often. And it can be a very lonely experience. I think the way you sort of described it, especially when you're younger, that, that and the shame you often, um, and fear, I imagine, when you're talking to you're this awful person and that sense of anxiety as well about, maybe also being out of control it's so difficult to control these things and i do think that's even though i think we've made some progress in, in the better portrayals of ocd in sort of the broader media i still think we it's, i mean it still is so so it's too often is it minimized yeah and i think also even if you do have the the more commonly sort of known obsessions and compulsions say it is around cleanliness and contamination I think there is just still that misunderstanding of the level of distress this stuff causes. It's not like, oh, if you have uh, uh, obsessions and compulsions around contamination and tidiness that you like doing that stuff and that you're, oh, you're, you're so OCD, you love tidying. Like the clue is in the name, it's a disorder. So even mm-hmm. if you do have the more sort of co- commonly uh, known uh, obsessions and compulsions, it's, it's, it's not... That you it's not a personality trait it's not that you like or enjoy doing this stuff it's really whatever whatever form it takes it's really incredibly distressing yeah absolutely is it frustrating when people say like just a little ocd and stuff like that just throw it around like it's quite a trivial subject yeah i think it is it, it, is, it is frustrating and i do get frustrated by it and i think and then people sometimes will say well what's the big deal and i guess the big deal is that it's that it's that kind of uh throwing around of the term that makes people like me when I was younger not know what they had mm-hmm. at my school I'm sure I probably would use that term too and say oh, so-and-so is a bit OCD for meaning someone's a vague perfectionist whilst not realizing that this is the thing that's ruining my life and then also I know so many people who have been 
they sort of finally end up almost getting a diagnosis and they sort of say, oh, no, that's not me. And then they can waste more years of their life. So mm-hmm. it's, it's misinformation. It's just it's more than just. It's frustrating because it's like you, OK, this person just doesn't understand my experience at all, but it's also really dangerous. Well, I think the issue, I totally agree. And I think that because what, what you need is it's the same with any mental health problems or any mental health challenges. You need validation. You need your feelings validated, your thoughts validated, because the experience is real for you. And and you say distressing and potentially debilitating and per, can permeate all aspects of your life. If somebody then is sitting just dismissing it, I mean, that's that, that then you're there's a vicious cycle of yeah feeding feeding your own then anxieties and well am i really experiencing this why am i experiencing this i mean it is an awful an awful cycle to be in so um moving on then lily if we can um to your writing and so maybe before we get before we talk about the book specifically so did you make a decision at some stage i'm going to start talking about my experiences in a more public fora or tell us a bit about that journey so I, I i was i was working as a journalist and i i didn't speak publicly about my ocd but i i became increasingly aggravated by the amount of just misinformation and stuff i would see so i so i think on one in one particularly annoyed moment i started a blog <laughs> um and then that blog I, I blogged for a while and sort of started connecting with other people who had OCD and then that blog got picked up by a non-fiction publisher who um, asked me if I wanted to publish a book about living with OCD so that was kind of how it happened. Oh fantastic and then so how was that so tell us about the experience of writing because obviously it's a really really personal well but well that's obviously so that was so let's think of this chronology here so is that the book came out first in 2016, am I right? Yes, that, that was um, my first book, Because We Are Bad, which is a, a, my, a, a memoir of my own experiences with OCD. So that was the that was the first book I wrote. Um, and then When I See Blue, which is the one that's just come out, uh, was written kind of in response to Because We Are Bad, because people would say to me, oh, I love this book, it was helpful. When are you going to write something that is suitable for my teenager or mm-hmm. the young person in my life or this person this uh, child I know who has OCD that kind of thing so that was how that one happened so then how, I'm just trying to get some how long it took you then to write the book because that's a that's a big deal the book actually did yeah I don't think it, it did it took about a year to write it came out when the book came out when I was 21 the first book came out when I was 21 okay <laughs> <laughs> I will say I know lots of people talk about this but I do find uh, I think it is just having mental living with mental illness and also I know people describe this with OCD but my memory is sort of a bit shot to pieces so yeah, I, no. I apologize no 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 not at all no I, I, no, <laughs> I apologize for asking the questions I just no, I just a reasonable question <laughs> no because I'm just because I guess it's really great that, that obviously blogs are great in and of themselves of course but then if this you just provide this platform for then getting a publishing deal for a, a book, which I think is, is just incredible. And, and the reviews um, for Because We Are Bad are been fantastic or were fantastic, still are fantastic. So I mean, because so how did you feel? Because I just when I wrote a book recently, my concern was when it when it came out, you're, the nights, the days before publication day, you're like panic. Well, I certainly was panicking. So, but yours is so personal as a memoir. Um, so how did you feel about that? And, and, and how did you find actually the writing process? And was that different from different from blogging or 
I think I, I almost didn't think about the fact that it was going to be read by anyone else. It is such a personal book. I'm not sure. And I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 29 now. I'm not sure I could, I don't know. There's something about just being 20 and just being like, okay. <laughs> I, I honestly, I'm not sure if I would do that now. It's so vulnerable and exposing. And I, it's not that I regret it, but it, it was really intense when people started to read it. And, you know, it's written from a very young place. It's, yeah. it's, it's immature in a way. And I, it's, uh, I, it's, it's sort of a bit like, who does this 20 year old think she is writing a memoir about her life? <laughs> but so honestly, I don't know if it would, if it would happen now. Um, when I was, when I was doing, so when the idea came and people were asking for this book for uh, young people, it was put to me, well, why don't you just do, because we are bad, but do it sort of in an age appropriate one. I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> I, I am right. Obviously when I see Blue is about OCD, but it's a different character. He has a different life to me. He's also a boy. I, 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 I just saw, I made differences between him and me. I really needed to put some space between it. And people will often say like, was writing because we are bad cathartic. Mm. I think I expected it to be, but honestly it was actually just quite, hard and I think the thing that sort of kept me going was just being like I'm really peeved by people misunderstanding OCD and I really need to do something about it I do find writing and journaling can be therapeutic but there mm -hmm. is a difference between the stuff that is very much for me and the stuff which is it is a more kind of um almost therapeutic mm -hmm. yeah therapeutic process I would I would say rather rather than writing something that is going to go although I know I just said that I had to kind of think about it like it wasn't going to be read by yeah. read by people I, it's a weird it's a weird it's a weird experience <laughs> no it is no and, and, and i don't think the way you describe it, i think it is because it's not just one set of emotions because you have a whole range of emotions going on about probably um obviously excited about getting the story your story out there but also yeah. then the anxiety so there's mixed emotions indeed just because i'm just thinking the timing timings again then lily and I, I i don't normally get so fixated in timelines so i apologize <laughs> i don't know where this has come from today but <laughs> But uh, maybe it's because your other books published my birthday or something. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but they, they, um, but so that but when you're writing it, that's when you wasn't in and, in and around the time when you had when you were an inpatient as well. Being so it was around 19 after that. So you really had gone through a lot by the time you wrote the book. So when you're saying, Oh, I was so young, what did I know? But my God, you'd known you'd gone through a lot at that stage. It was in quite quick succession because I, I was doing a university degree, which I dropped out of. That was when I was about 19. I had an impatience day and then got this job sort of, I worked, I worked in a nursery as a teaching assistant for a few months. Um, and then I, uh, I, I basically wrote to my local magazine and was like, will you take me on to make tea and coffee? <laughs> sort of convinced them to, to keep me on and, and, give, and give me a job. And that was when I started the blogging and that was when the publisher contacted me. So it all happened. Yeah, it did all happen. Mm. It all happened really quickly. And I was quite sort of freshly out of crisis when I started yeah, yeah. writing the book. Yeah, an incredibly brave thing. People say brave a lot, but I mean, it really is an incredibly brave thing and obviously will have helped thousands of people. And, and, I, and I bet over the years you've had lots of correspondence from people Saying, oh, that's I can see me in that story or in your story, or and 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 I think that's just so rewarding. Never mind getting the yeah. challenge and the stigma and the misunderstandings, but helping people identify that actually 
I'm not alone and other people other people experience these things. Yeah, I will say that that's kind of almost like the cathartic bit. Like mm-hmm. when I was writing it, it was very much like, okay, this is the job. This is the mission statement. I want people to understand I'm going to write this chapter at a time and then it's going to be done. And it was quite like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. But once it's out in the world, it's actually hearing from people and connecting with them. That that is really genuinely very cathartic, actually. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, such a gift to to the world in that sense. And that sounds a bit grand, but I think it's true. <laughs> I think it's true. But there's a gift because once it leaves your computer, you've no control over it, and it's then. And I think that's and that is a gift because you're helping others. So I mean that genuinely. So then fast forward and then on to, to well, modern day, so to speak. That's a, this year. Craig, do you want to hand over to you? Because then you've really excitingly published When I See Blue. So Craig, do you want to tell us what you because you've been you've been dipping into it? I am so excited to talk about this. There is I've learned so much. Although this is aimed at children. I've learned so much from this book. Um, it's it's really fascinating to know uh, the depths of uh, of OCD. Whereas I I guess a lot of the misconceptions where it's just all you know have everything in line and stuff. And I guess in the book, um, Benny um, actually talks about the misconceptions some people actually have with um, OCD and just know how how far it goes in terms of like colors and and steps and stuff like that. It's um, it's a wonderful book, really is. I feel like I'm doing a review now. Lily, could you maybe give us an, an overview of, of, of When I See Blue, what the synopsis? Yeah, sure. So uh, the main character is a boy called Ben. Um, he moves from Essex to London. His family are making that move. And he, uh, at his old school in Essex, he's been a bit of an outsider, treated as a bit of a weirdo. And uh, that's largely because of of the his, the compulsions that he does at school, and the fact that people just think it's a bit strange and they sort of ostracise him. Anyway, he decides that when he comes to London, he's going to reinvent himself, and he's not going to do any compulsions, or he'll if he does do them, he'll do them in his head, which is something I went I went I went through a bit that sort of conversion of being like, right, people think this behaviour is weird. I'm now going to mentalise it which is not something that everyone with OCD goes through, but it can happen. Um, so he comes to London and he's, he's right, I'm going to start over, boom. But obviously it's not <laughs> easy to just reinvent yourself. And especially if, you, if, you, if you're living with a complicated mental illness, just decide not to have it. That's not really going to work. <laughs> so he, but he ends up meeting a, a friend called April. He's never really had a friend before. And with her help, um, they sort of start to figure things out, and he also and he um, he has the help from with, from other people around him too. He meets a therapist later in the book called Dinesh, who he works with, and it's um, it's sort of about his his struggle to sort of find his place in the world and deal with what's going on. And it's not it's, it is about OCD and his experience, but it's also about friendship and just about being twelve years old, really. <laughs> Yeah, there's some really difficult like subject matter in this in this book, especially talking. Don't want to spoil anything, but talking about um, Benny's parents is in particular his mum. Yeah, and um, I guess with I oh I I don't know if I yeah okay with uh, with uh, alcoholism. Um, yeah. and stuff and stuff like that and dealing with that as a as a young boy in year eight just with the OCD as well 
I think one thing definitely is to have a friend like April. April yeah. in the book is a bit of a rebel that definitely pushes um, Ben out of his comfort zone. And it's, it's that stepping stone for him to learn more about his, I guess, condition. Yeah, I think April is exactly what Ben needs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you, based on uh, some of your own experiences... I know yeah. you said you wanted to separate it from yourself. No, but it, it is. Yeah. I think I wanted to create a level of separation, but at the same time, it is about a child who has OCD and that is based on my own experience. And a lot of Ben's compulsions are stuff that I did or, or had. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so his his storyline is different to mine and, you know, we're not quite, in fact, in, in some ways we're quite different. But yes, the OCD element is is sort of is based on my experience. And then, how did you find writing a fiction? I know it's obviously some components obviously taken from your own life, but writing fiction book rather compared to writing the memoir, how was that experience? I think it was a really good experience, actually. I mean, when I was, I've always wanted to be a writer, and when I was younger, I always imagined myself writing fiction. Um, and the publisher I'm with have actually taken a sequel, so I will be, I'll be writing a another book for nine to 12 year olds and that's fiction and yeah I feel like I'm I'm where I need to be fantastic and when's when when's your deadline for the next book I don't really know I mean it's I think I think I'm I'm quite I'm actually not in uh, not in an OCD way (laughs) it's more that I've because I used to be quite chaotic but I've sort of worked to become a bit more organized with deadlines Um, so I I think I think they probably know that I'm on it, but like it is supposed to come out a, a year, I think, after this book. So I, 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 I yeah, soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good deadline. I like a soon deadline. That's, that's always good. So, no, and I wish you all the best with writing with the, the sequel. And it's really, really exciting, Lily. And, and, uh, and again, a whole new audience uh, of, of young people, but obviously not so young people in the, in the case of Craig. Yeah. I suppose in terms of Harry Potter was written for kids and obviously has good universal appeal. So it seems that um, when I see Blue, we'll have that universality as well. Can I maybe, as this obviously is an MQ Open Mind Research podcast as well, we're trying to mix the sort of research and the lived experience of people's experiences. So Lily, maybe I'll ask you, if you're thinking about, because you um, I've obviously, I assume, been thinking about the evidence for what works and doesn't work in terms of helping people with OCD. But if you were, if somebody said to you, here is a million pounds, right? Mm. And you and you could invest it in research to yeah. help people with OCD or to understand, what, what, I mean, what would you, would you have any sense, what would your number one question be, what we would try and do with that money? Well, I think, as we've kind of spoken about those, quite a solid research base that indicates that uh, CBT with ERP is uh, a really effective treatment option for for people with OCD and also that yeah taking an SSRI in combination can can be helpful but I think it's also important to talk about the fact that there remains a a significant proportion of people with OCD who are treatment resistant to, to that stuff and for whom it doesn't seem to help either as much or sometimes at all um I think so. I think for CBT with ERP, the uh, the the number of the sort of obviously it depends. It depends on what research you look at, but in general, it seems the sort of about sixty percent of patients have clinically significant improvement. But that's also quite a lot of of, of people who don't. And, yeah. um, lots of people drop out of treatment prematurely. Um, 
you know, there, there remains a group of people who who will tell you, you know, I've, I've taken every SSRI under the sun. I've um, tried CBT lots of times. Nothing works. So I think um, if I had a million pounds, what I would be used doing that is to is looking into broadening research into treatment options. I mean, stuff mm-hmm. like acceptance and commitment therapy and uh, EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. Uh, lots of people anecdotally report that they're having success with that. And if you look at the research, it sort of says like these things, these treatments have been found to be quote, possibly efficacious. Mm, And it would be, it would just be really not, I mean, without sounding too fluffy, I I would just really love to, for there to be treatment options for everyone with OCD. Cause, uh, and I mean, for instance, something that I'm really interested in is the um, increasing research into uh, psilocobin, I think that's how you say it. I know people say it differently. Um, well, Orchard OCD have been, uh, which is a, a, an organization here in the UK, have been crowdfunding for a study that they've just started. I think there's a small Yale trial that's currently recruiting, and mm-hmm. there was a small trial back in 2006. But it's so psilocobin is the, uh, is a natural compound found in magic mushrooms and 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 in and so people are looking into like whether that in 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 sort of small doses could be a could be a treatment option and i just think that's really interesting i'd probably put my not necessarily just into that but i just yeah that that kind of area yeah no but i think but you you described it as fluffy this whatever but i think it's it should be the aspiration that we develop novel treatments doesn't matter if they're pharmacological, psychosocial, whatever they may be, psychological more generally, um, but that will work for everybody because the, the stark reality is in the exact same way with any other treatments, and no, there's no treatment is effective for everybody. And well, most, yeah, exactly. And, and, but it's trying to find that fit. And that's why we need this innovation. We need to, to think of new ways and like acceptance and commitment therapy obviously is one of the newer generations of psychological treatments. And it's trying to look to see, well, what works and yeah. recognizing that we are all individuals. So, of course, if we're individuals, it needs an individual individual or a personalized response. But we need the evidence base. So I think I totally agree. Let's look at whatever, try out, try out anything and everything to see what works and what's effective. So I think that's a, that's a great suggestion. Well, it's also just really important because without that research, then like the NHS will not fund access to, to those therapies or this insurance if you're in the States or where, depending on what your healthcare system is. So if there are if there are therapies that can help and that research is needed in order to help people get access mm-hmm. to them, I think it's really important that we investigate that. And no, I, it's not fluffy. I just, it's a bit in this world, isn't it? So, so I want to help everyone. But, but, I, um, but, I, 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 but that's why I would put my money there because I mm-hmm. think it's really important. And I think it is... It's very limiting when someone is not is not um, is not responding to their CBT with ERP, and it's like, well, that's the gold standard. That's the treatment option that we have for you. Nothing else is available currently, unless you go private and you yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I think that's a great suggestion. So we've we're sort of coming and bringing things to a sort of a, a close. Um, so just I have a couple of there's a couple of final questions I have just they're different from the sort of mental health OCD type questions. But one just uh, which we had thought about asking you, which I think um, is really important is, well, what advice like you have a lots of experience um, with OCD and with and now writing about OCD. What, what advice would you give somebody 
with OCD? I think one of the first things you can do is it, that is really helpful is educating yourself about OCD, partly because, like we've talked about, there are so many misconceptions around it. And just having that psychoeducation, even if it's something you've done through looking at a charity sites online or a self-help book by a doctor or a psychiatrist, or it, it can be really empowering and have be like, okay, so that's why that's that's happening. Mm-hmm. That's how that works. And it can also be helpful, I think, if you are um, again, like we've talked about, on a big long waiting list to sort of in the meantime start trying to work out what it is that you've been living with. I would encourage people to to, to try and access some CBT with ERP and, and, and to get a diagnosis and to to push for second opinions if if you do encounter a GP or, or someone in the mental health sphere who is less educated about because that does it happens a lot less but it does mm-hmm. it does still happen um, and yeah to 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 connect with other people who have OCD because there's a lot to learn from people with lived experience absolutely and obviously every Wednesday at seven p.m. yes go come for the go for the Twitter hour. Um, <laughs> And that, I think it's great, great advice, Lily. So well, before I do the last two questions, we've just bought it. Um, I've just, I can't not ask this question. So um, I've read somewhere that you ride, a, you're a tandem bicyclist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I mean, I tried that once as a, as a late, t- no, in my early 20s, and it didn't go well. <laughs> so, so how... So tell me about that then. <laughs> well, I, I have been into, I mean, I, full disclosure, I actually haven't ridden a tandem bicycle for quite a while now, but I, I was doing it for a period of time. I, I ride a bike and enjoy that. And there's a group of uh, blind and visually impaired cyclists that I sort of came into contact with through my now husband who were looking for a cyclist, a sighted, a sighted cyclist ah, okay. to, be, to be a pilot rider on one of their tandem bicycles and I said uh, I was asked if I if I had any interest in doing this I was like I do have interest but I'm (laughs) very dyspraxic I'm not sure I'm your woman (laughs) but I I went along to the group and uh they trained me up and yeah so I can pilot ride a tandem bicycle impressive that's an impressive skill to have it's it's a lot of trust for your um for the for the rider you're with to yeah to in you and I'm not sure I would put that trust in you, anyway, <laughs> Craig, no, no crashes so far. <laughs> Craig, are you a tandem cyclist? I, I love my mountain biking, but I just the idea of having someone either in front or behind me <laughs> it just kind of freaks me out. <laughs> I, I'm I'm convinced that if I had somebody else, it'd be my fault that you know we fall off. Oh or yeah, something yeah. It, it sort of reminds me of, this is a bit of a tangent, it reminds me of, of when I first moved to Scotland, so I'm Irish, Lily, but when I first moved to Scotland, everybody here does, whatever, mountain climbing, climbing of mountains, but there's lots of indoor um, climbing walls. And a mate of mine, who, uh, he, I could that say, he must have been 15 stone, right? And I am, the, well, I'm, I was probably about 10 stone then, and there's a thing called belaying, which is yeah. you obviously climbing, for those who don't know the climbing stuff. So you climb up, so one of you is climbing up the wall, but the rope, they're attached to you at the at the bottom on the rope, and you're meant to stand, the person on the ground, in case the person falls off, right? So that you stop them from falling right to the ground. Now I can you see think where this the, is going. <laughs> think of the physics, right? So 10 stone on the, me on the ground, him and his 15 stone, and he 
falls off. And you're meant to, there's a way in which you can do it that you can, whatever, I don't know, that you're not meant to. So literally it was something out of a cartoon, which was, so basically he falls off, slips off, and he rockets to the ground. And then I literally jump rocket to the air and it just didn't work at all. So it reminds me a bit of what you said about the tandem and the trust you need to have yeah. each other. Anyway, that was just a bit of an an aside, so apologies for that, everybody. But anyway, so the last, my last two, just to bring it to a close, Lily, unless, unless there's anything in particular you would like to talk about we haven't touched on, Lily? No, I don't think so. Okay, so the, I would think it's a nice way to sort of, sort of bring the podcast to an end, which is, first of all, thinking back to your 16-year-old self, um, so what advice, again, so I've asked you about advice you give to other people who obviously suffer from OCD, but thinking more generally, what advice would you give to yourself to your 16-year-old self now reflecting as you're what you're saying, you're 29 now, did you say? Yeah. I think I would tell her to to I would oh first of all I would say say, look, you have OCD, go and get a diagnosis. <laughs> but I, I would also say stop worrying so much about what people think of you. And obviously that's easier said than done, especially when there is the compulsive element. But I would just be like, just be weird, be you. It's fine. You'll meet people who like you for that. And it's a lot less exhausting than mm-hmm. just trying to be something you're not all the time. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And it just reminded me of I think one of the reviews I read for when it when I see blue was when I see blue should be like is like the new wonder. It should be and the wonder. I haven't read the book Wonder, but I've seen the film Wonder. That's the same idea of accepting who you are. And my God, that's um, so that's great advice. And then that, my last the last question is again if you had this ideal sort of time travel capsule thing so you could have dinner or coffee with just one person living or dead who would that be who would you like really most likely to be and that's a really unfair question asking one person but let's try i'm a big doctor who fan so I would like that time capsule to be the TARDIS. Right, oh, good, good, good. There's a lot of references to Doctor Who in this. Yeah. yeah. And I'd probably like to ride around for it, ride around in it a bit with uh, Peter Capaldi, because I just think he's the best. He's my favourite Doctor. I love him. He's he's just so cool. I love everything he's, he's in and works on. And mm-hmm. um, I think we'd have a really good time. <laughs> and 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 he's Scottish and yeah right and I live in Scotland but Irish yeah. but anyway no that's that not great no Peter Capaldi is a fantastic fantastic actor and yeah I don't think he's ever done anything bad actually well, like he never bombs yeah no, he never bombs that's a, that's, that's a great way to end okay so on behalf of Craig and I Lily thanks so much for your time and then just to those who are listening catch obviously Lily's books and um, and obviously um, Craig is holding one now when I see blue now and obviously best of luck with with the ongoing writing and now with the with the sequel and 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 the really really important work you're doing in promoting and dispelling myths around OCD. So thanks and thanks a million, Lily. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organisation that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.